You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. On day two of our attack, someone very senior in the U.S. government had a conversation with me, and they said, you need to think about this differently. It's a cyber attack, but you need to use battlefield tactics if you're going to survive it. So think about war. And the DPRK, they wrote a letter to the UN and they wrote a letter to the President of the United States and they said that they would consider the release of a movie to be an act of war if Sony Pictures did this. That movie was ultimately released after the attack. The focus during the attack was to survive it. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And for those listening right now, you're definitely in for a treat with today's episode. We've had a lot of notable cybersecurity hacks in recent months. In fact, one of the largest and most impactful of all time has been the SolarWinds breach that we're still finding more information on every day. But one hack that really sticks in people's heads in particular happened back in 2014. Shortly before Thanksgiving of that year, hackers from North Korea stole troves of sensitive information from Sony Pictures with the intention of scaring the studio into nixing the film release of The Interview. The hack prompted international outrage and even brought in President Barack Obama at the time saying that Sony shouldn't kowtow to North Korea's demands. Before the entire system went dark, the malware that North Korea placed on to the systems at Sony Pictures wiped out half of the global digital network. It junked more than half of their 7,000 personal computers and more than half of their 1,500 servers. Within hours, the global media giant was back into the 1980s. Its employees were even using fax machines and pens and paper to facilitate their work. And it got worse. The hackers had actually been inside Sony's system for weeks and stolen all of Sony's data before they deleted it. Over the next month, they released nine batches of confidential files onto the public internet. Everything from executive salaries to embarrassing emails, unfinished film scripts, and actual unreleased films like the remake of Annie and Fury. Even with all of that, it could have gotten significantly worse if it wasn't for key leaders within Sony Pictures making some critical decisions at the very beginning of the attack to ensure the company would frankly survive. And the person right in the center of all this was the chief security officer of Sony Pictures at the time, Stephen Bernard. And I'm very fortunate to have him on the show today to bring listeners behind the scenes of what happened during that period of time. Steve's diverse career has spanned nearly 50 years, working and living in over 50 different countries and serving in executive roles in government and the private sector. Over the past 17 years, Steve led Sony Pictures Global Protection Services, which also supported investigations in forensics, physical security, sustainability, and more. Prior to this, he worked in high-tech, energy, and law enforcement fields. Recently, he founded and launched Bernard Global, his own private security company. His clients have included the FBI, the Department of State, several academic institutions, and many of the Fortune 1000 companies. 
And I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with him today because security has certainly been top of mind for many government executives right now. Steve, thanks for joining me today. A pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brian. So let's start by tell the audience, what have you been up to since retiring from Sony Pictures? Well, surprisingly, it's been almost three years. And um, when I thought about retiring, I thought, you know, I'm not quite ready to hang up my spurs. So I decided to, uh, to launch my own business um, just to see how it would go. And it, it's been a, it was a great decision. You know, I, um, I've been able to stay connected with so many friends and associates around the world and continue some of the work I do for the government. Um, and, uh, and really, you know, the timing was amazing with, with the pandemic in 2020 and, you know, all the changes that we've seen in digital. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of people today more than ever want to talk about cyber and risk. And, um, and so I find myself doing a, a webinar or a podcast or, or something probably uh, three or four times a week. Um, at, in, you know, various, uh, venues and, uh, uh, you know, for academia, for government, for, uh, you name it. I would imagine, especially with the pandemic with cybersecurity, uh, I mean, so many hacks have been, uh, propagated. I mean, not just in the U S all over the world, especially with, uh, remote work. So I can imagine you must be a pretty busy guy right now. Yeah, I, it's a good point, actually. Um, you know, one of the things that when you look back just in the last 15 months, um, a lot of businesses that weren't, were barely digital or weren't at all, or had to go digital, um, in survival mode, right? You had to change the dynamic of the way you did business to make it available for people to, to stay connected, to order online, to whether it was food or whatever it was. Um, and, I, and so I, that's great, right? So many more people are connected today around the world. However, uh, what came with that was that a lot of people did it in a hurry and didn't take the time really to think about the vulnerabilities that would be created uh, by doing that. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that now and in the next few months and, or weeks even that um, companies do a timeout, that they take a fresh look at, um, you know, what are my vulnerabilities today? And then to begin to develop a plan or a roadmap around continuous improvement. You know, make it better. Really important. And one of the talk tracks I've had is, and, and you actually just touched on it, a lot of those decisions that happened when the pandemic kicked off were very much knee-jerk reactions. And now's the time for businesses and governments to stop and take a more strategic view across their enterprise. I think security is part of that. And we talk about knee-jerk reactions and not having a lot of time for decisions. Uh, I, I want to jump into your experience, obviously, back in 2014 um, as the chief security officer for Sony Pictures. You were, you were boots on the ground for this entire, uh, this entire hack that a lot of us witnessed on, on CNN or, or whatever news outlet you were watching at the time. Um, and you played a pivotal role in securing the viability of the company. Um, take us back to that time period and kind of what happened. How did everything kick off? Yeah, it's it's um, still a really important uh, topic today, even though it happened six years ago. The same malware, the same bad guys, the same tactics are in play right now. The difference is that it's for sale, you know, um, 
on the dark web or the deep web, and um, and people are are still using it. So, and nation states um, have become even more aggressive in that regard. What was unique, though, about what happened to us is that it wasn't just to steal our data, uh, exfiltrate, uh, embarrass people, leak emails, um, contracts, you know, five movies that weren't released yet. Um, That wasn't just the objective. The objective was also to destroy the company. So when you think about what, what capabilities a nation state has in cyber and a desire not only to do what I said, but also to destroy all the data, which in turn destroys the company. That's a big deal. That for, th- for over three weeks, I think that was the biggest story in the world. It was unprecedented attack at that time. And, and, and you know, we did, uh, I, I want to clarify. So my job was executive vice president, global protection services uh, in Sony Pictures Entertainment, operating in 50 countries, 150 offices, and thousands of people doing productions for us on television and theatrical all over the world. And, and so that morning of Thanksgiving week, when we realized that the Guardians of Peace had visited us um, and that not only could we no longer control a device that we turned on and connected, but that that same device uh, was, was having um, an experience of meltdown. In other words, all the data on the hard drive was, was being destroyed. And so um, we had a couple of decisions to make day one in the trenches. And I, I would encourage all of your listeners to really think about this in your contingency planning. Um, you, the day one decisions you make, you can plan for those next week or next month. You don't have to wait until day one, right? That's too late. So our day, day one decisions were, we, we thought it was a nation state. We knew we needed help. Uh, we called the FBI. And, uh, you know, we got past the issue of, oh, my God, we're going to lose our, or give up our legal privilege. That was never an issue. We, you know, it was, a, it was a consideration, but not an issue. And, and we never regretted making the decision to get help from the Bureau. And thank God we did. Um, another decision that was made day one, um, and, and I want to say this, too, that if your event or your incident happens during a holiday period, where are the decision makers on that day? Are you going to be able to reach them? Are you, or, or do you have the authority in their absence to make tough decisions? So here's the toughest decision probably of all. That is to unplug worldwide and go dark. That day. How do you do it? Who, who says, all right, we're going to do it? And what are the implications of doing it? Because it's not so simple when you unplug just one day say, okay, let's plug back in now, right? I mean, what we went through for weeks after that was pretty uh, overwhelming, required a hell of a lot of effort. The, the Another thing we did on day one is we uh, went through our Rolodex, if you will, and took a look at all of the, uh, the folks that we thought we should bring in to help us on top of, or in addition to, the work the Bureau was doing. So I had the responsibility for investigations, forensics. We had three forensic labs, um, one in Hong Kong, one in London, one in L.A., that were all offline, that were managed by experts, 
um, that had certifications. I also had certified fraud examiners working for me. So we were able in concert with the FBI and another company that we brought in um, to do a lot of the great work that needed to be done in analyzing, uh, preserving chain of custody, uh, legal privilege, confidentiality, integrity of data, um, and 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 a, you know an unintended consequence, Brian, of unplugging is that what we never even thought about is by unplugging we froze everything in time. So in addition to melting down all of our data, what was happening is all the malware was disappearing as well. Malware is evidence, right? And and so because we froze it, when the bureau came in and our other partners, um, we were able without without dispute to make and, and I, I got to say it. I, I want to say it in the right way. Um, and by the way, these comments are are not intended to represent those of Sony. They're mine, <laughs> based on my experiences and my views and so on. So, but anyway. Um, so November 24th is the date that we found out we had the issue when they launched, right? However, they'd been in there for a while and they got in through phishing. But what happened on December 19th is the president of the United States and the director of the FBI formally made attribution to North Korea, uh, in large part based upon what we saw in the malware, right? It, it, like I said, it was irrefutable. It was the same malware that was used uh, to attack the banks and the ATMs in Seoul during Dark Seoul, uh, and also uh, in Bangladesh and in other instances. So I, I think you know, and and I don't think Sony Pictures ever did make attribution to to North Korea. Um, government did, and and so um, there were a lot of benefits in doing that, and um, those were the right decisions. There were many, many others um, that came over a period of a long time. So you touched on business continuity planning and you obviously had the right people in the room or the people that needed to be there based on the right people maybe being on vacation, as you mentioned. Um, how, how do you plan for an attack like that? Because I look at a very similar example in the form of the pandemic. Organizations couldn't plan for something like this. It was unprecedented. And to have contingencies in place for something that's completely unprecedented is a very difficult thing. Is that something that you guys had in place? Did you ever prepare for a, not even a nation state attack, but an, an attack from any type of threat to this magnitude? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, in business continuity planning, crisis management, preparedness, response, and so on, there are fundamentals that go into it. And the fundamentals, I mean, really the premise should be that it doesn't matter what type of a breach or an incident we have, you know, if we have the right fundamentals in place, we can bring together the teams, uh, both individually and functionally, at where roles have been predefined and clearly understood and tested. And you have plans that are written and, uh, and not just sitting there digitally. By the way, you gotta print them out as well because Remember, I, I said we went dark. Thankfully, we had printed plans as well, 150 of them. But um, I think that's what's important. We did have, uh, I, I had the CISO function reporting to me for the 10 years prior to that as well. Um, and we all came together. We all had 
conversations about what if, right? And, and we did have a lot of other situations where we activated our incident assessment team, our BCP program, and, and really uh, responded in ways that to, to I, I won't list them, but there are a variety of situations. And we also had experience with the PlayStation attack at Sony um, and other things. That, and that one started to become physical as well, by the way. But um, the answer to your question is, did we prepare for this? No. Um, because you don't think that way. You can't imagine that you know a company that size, uh, which is a division of Sony, it wasn't all of Sony, um, would would be prepared for that, or, or would be a victim of a nation state destructive attack. Really, we're in the business to entertain the world. That's all, and and boy, here it came. So the point I want to make is, it can happen to anybody. So put your crisis teams together. Um, bring the right individuals in the room, make sure all functions are represented, break it down, um, train on it, and, and get as ready as you can. But when you do it, make day one decisions in, in the process and, and try to do it around black swan events. Worst case scenario is a really good way to plan. And I'll give you just one. How are you going to run your business in the dark? No connectivity worldwide. How are you going to make payroll? How are you going to account for all of your, your receivables and payables? And, and just the continuity of the business, because you have the incident to manage and run, but you also have a business to run. Otherwise, you may not survive it. So, and based on your experience with, with this particular incident, as well as uh, things that have happened even since then with uh, even solar winds and, and others, do you think we should expect more aggressive uh, and increasing nation state sponsored attacks moving forward on government and on private entities? Yes. And if I think if in the uh, deep, dark circles of our United States government and probably the UK and Australia and the other friendlies, um, they absolutely expect more. Why? Because it works. It happens oftentimes with impunity. So let's let's talk just a moment about a couple things that we've seen recently. Solar winds and Microsoft Exchange server attacks. Those two were very sophisticated. It took the adversaries uh, a very long time to plan, and it took a lot of people to plan that had really good skills. So they showed they could do it. We still don't, we're still reeling from what may have happened. We haven't even done a full assessment yet. Um, so that's, that's one type. Um, and, and so you got to ask yourself, well, what are the reasons that these things are happening with nation states? It may be that you got one that's really hungry uh, or, or really upset and angry um, or wants competitive intelligence to dominate the world or, um, you know, there's other reasons, right? So you got to look at, well, why is it happening? Who do you think it is? What tactics were used? What are the impacts? Rather than do a knee-jerk reaction and just say, oh, we've got a breach. Let's contain it and, and remove it and let's move on. It isn't that simple anymore. So assume it, it's a sophisticated attack. Either, by the way, nation states are going in the deep and dark web. 
they're hiring adversaries to do the work for them. And the adversaries have the tools, right? So that, that gives distance to a nation state that uh, they don't have to be as perhaps readily exposed when the work is done on the investigations side. So um, I, I, yeah, get ready for it. And let me say one more thing about what I'm afraid of. There at some point will probably be um, a counter, an attribution made towards um, governments that we feel uh, cross the line. I'm not going to say cross the red line, because that's a whole other conversation. But I'm just saying cross the line. So we'll probably do some things back to them in the cyber space, in the cyber battlefield, if you will. What will that cause? A ripple effect, probably. And I don't, I don't think it's going to end up being purely government to government. I think there's going to be a trickle-down effect or a residual effect where it's going to be, if, if we do that, what we may see is where they've already you know, been able to penetrate the electrical grid, as an example, or utilities. Um, flip a switch, flip a switch. And, and you know, all of a sudden, we're feeling a lot more pain. So then what do we do? And if this happens and continues to escalate, um, that's a much bigger problem, not only for the U.S. government, but for the private sector as well. And, you know, if, if, uh, the, I, I, gotta, I think you're going to get there with me, but I just have to say, if you haven't really taken a time out and really done a vulnerability assessment on where you are from a cyber risk standpoint, please do. Please get that done. Um, it's, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time. But you need to know what your vulnerabilities are. You need to know where your crown jewels are, how they're protected, and, and uh, get serious about this. Because this is all about data. Data is, is really, right, the future. So really good point there where you're talking about assessing your vulnerability. Would you say that's probably a very logical next step for government leaders to do? Um, when they are thinking about the the, the continuity or, or the potential of of something coming, I think the government has done a pretty good job with it. You know, I'm seeing a lot of great product coming out of government, U.S. government, um, the CISA program, NIST, mm -hmm. and others. Um, there's some fantastic information and guidelines on there that really are available to the private sector. The FBI's InfraGuard program sharing of different types of malware and tactics and countermeasures and so on, keeping us more informed on who the adversaries are and what they're doing. This is great, but you've got to have dedicated resources in your company that that's all they do. They pay attention to this. They, they call them uh, programs I'm starting to see evolve now are what they call threat, threat hunter programs, where you're actually out there looking for it and, and then making sure that you're you know, uh, your radar is on. I'll put it that way. Um, but but the government is doing a pretty good job, I think. Uh, private sector, not so much. Um, you know, and, and you know, I, I I can't tell you exactly. I but I saw a number the other day that I think it was over fifty percent of small to medium enterprise business have no insurance for this, no cyber or risk insurance. And really, I, I'm not saying that insurance is the uh, panacea. It certainly is not. But, you know, what are you going to do when it happens 
Um, it's nice to have uh, a little bit of a, of a backup plan through a risk insurance program, but also with the companies that insure you, they tend to be pretty good on the response side and at least, you know, in a role where they can advise you. So get ready is my message. But, but here's, I want to go back to BCP a minute and the importance of it. Done right. I think what that equals today is survival. You have to be prepared. You can't be the deer caught in headlights and, and just stand there frozen and not know what to do. And I, I, had a, I had a call two weeks ago from the CFO of a manufacturing company, medium-sized business, not large, maybe 500 employees. And they got a call from their outsource IT provider. And it said, we think we've been a victim of the uh, Microsoft uh, server exchange attack. and uh, you know, we'll, we'll get back with you. He, he's like, I, I get on the phone with him. He had no plan. He had no idea of what to do or where to start. And so I started putting together for him some guidelines and, and some things to think about. And it, it included, you know, um, notifications and communications and, you know, the continuity of the business and response to the incident. And, and it, it was a whole myriad of things. And I, I know it was really overwhelming for him. And my point is, again, don't wait for that. So you made an interesting point there where you said you think the U.S. government's doing a really good job uh, and private sector isn't necessarily meeting that same, uh, same level. But one of the things that we see constantly is a lot of that top cyber talent is moving to the private sector and government can't compete with some of the the private sector, whether it's uh, the the salaries that they're paying, the benefits, all, all types of things. But is there, in my opinion, that's certainly a national security risk. Do you see that type of thing evolving or, or what are your thoughts on that? Um, from everything I've read, there are currently 3 million cyber related jobs open and available in the United States. The unemployment level for somebody with a degree in computer science is probably 0% if they want to be employed. Um, that's great. And I, I'm seeing more and more colleges, uh, universities offering um, cyber-related programs. That, that's fantastic because we've got to do more in that regard. Um, it is a problem in government. Um, Typically, government doesn't pay what the private sector can offer. Uh, and so there's some <laughs> uh, movement afoot there. But government does offer some things that the private sector may not. And, and I think the government is willing to uh, take more chances, to look at new technologies, to actually acquire and test uh, and develop new technologies. I think the learning curve in, in government can be really good. So eventually, if you want to go in the private sector and make more money, okay. But I, I encourage, when I, when I lecture at, at college campuses, I encourage students to give the government a, a chance to really, when, you're, when you get into the market, be very open-minded about government opportunity versus private sector and, and at least spend two, three years in government learning as much as you can and giving back 
doing, you know, in a public service mode, if you will, you know, the money will come uh, because they're in a field that it, the need is so great. It's not going away. So, but I do worry about it. I, and I'll say one more thing about government and cyber. And I use the term cyber. It's, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've tried to encourage um, different branches of the federal government to start to think differently about, so, so I'm going to give you an example. In, in a lot of branches of government in law enforcement, there's GS, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and so on. That's it. So if, if your job is a GS 11 or 12, and that's what it is, and you bring a whole bunch of skills as it relates to cyber, um, you get paid the same as the guy who's, you know, doing a bank fraud or on the, on the bank robbery detail or whatever. Not knocking those guys. But my point is that, that these guys bring critical skills. And, and I think they've got to rethink the way that they compensate and attract and retain and develop and, and motivate those folks. Um, create more of an incubator, if you will. And, and I think we're, we may see some of that going forward as well. Yeah, I think the reskilling side of things is certainly something I'm seeing with an uptake in government where they're seeing people with complementary skill sets like computer science, like you mentioned, and in certain roles where it could be a next logical step for them to move into uh, potentially a cybersecurity role to support some of these, uh, some of the initiatives, because it is such a challenge to not only fill these roles, but then at the same time, the leaders have an increasing threat with less people to help them mitigate that threat. The other day I was doing some research for a speech I gave, and I read something that I just thought puts all this in perspective. Um, and it was the uh, CEO of IBM um, did a presentation recently. And keep in mind, the CEO talking about cybersecurity, it was refreshing. Here's what she said. We believe data is the phenomena of our time. It is the world's natural resource, the basis of competitive advantage, transforming every profession and industry. If true, even inevitable, then cybercrime by definition is the greatest threat to every profession, every industry, every company in the world. I just thought that hit it home. Yeah, I mean, it puts it in perspective. And we talk about data and, and government. To me, government is an absolute treasure trove of data. You have uh, personal information on citizens from, frankly, all over the world. And I think that's one of the reasons why we saw, especially during the pandemic, an increase in ransomware attacks at the government level, because I think hackers know exactly how valuable that type of data is to a government entity. And they, they were predatory on that. Yeah. The other area, though, that was a, a target and still is, is the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. Because, of, as you said, of all the personal information, I mean, you talk about personal information, right? I'm a cancer survivor. All those records are somewhere in an archive, digital archive. They're not in a file cabinet somewhere, right? Or maybe they are, but you're unlikely to break into an office to get those records. But if they're online and available, what can you do with them when you hack that company? that contains those records and not only threaten the company, 
But actually, what they're doing now is reaching out to individuals and saying, if you don't put pressure on the company we just hacked uh, and we're threatening to expose their data on, on a ransomware, uh, then we may also expose your data. And so uh, it's amazing what's happening. But the other thing I'm seeing happening with ransomware is um, they're actually doing great uh, homework in determining um, who has insurance, who has you know cyber um, security insurance, and going after them because they're more likely to pay. I mean, these guys are doing their homework, really sophisticated, and they should be because of all the money they're making. So if a government is a victim of a ransomware attack, what are some of the steps they can actually take to either get that data back or at least or mitigate the, the potential for things to get worse and escalate? Well, it's, it's tough. A lot of this is done with impunity. These guys are in countries where we have no extradition treaties. They know it. And their own governments are not going to do anything to ferret them out. They're actually bringing revenue to the country. Uh, granted, you know, they're not paying tax on it, but they're bringing revenue. Um, I, I think, you know, there's two issues on ransomware. One is, um, how about you get ahead of it and, and start implementing the right programs, countermeasures, so that it doesn't happen? Or if they're looking to, to make someone a victim, it's the other guy, it's not you, because you made it more difficult. So I think that's one, and we could, you know, we can talk about a, a hundred different things you can do on, on that front. On the other front, though, once it's happened, you know, you only have a, a narrow window of time because they're going to pressure the hell out of you to pay. And so um, with that, there are companies today that um, actually offer a service where they'll come in and help you manage a ransomware attack, including it's almost like in the old days when we had a, a K&R, you know, a kidnap and ransom situation. Uh, I remember, you know, in a prior company I was in, we had uh, a couple in, uh, in Colombia where, you know, one guy was kidnapped and held for 54 weeks and we paid millions of dollars and we had proof of life and all that. This is the same principle, if you will. Um, but, but we negotiated, right, over a period of time. And there are companies that have professionals that can help you negotiate and try to lower the price of payment. What I'm seeing more so in government today is they're paying. I mean, we just saw Houston Rockets last month had a cyber breach, and then you didn't hear much more about it. I assume they paid. Um, the D.C. Police Department last week was hacked. Ransomware. Think about all the data assuming that they, they got into the right files of informants, of criminal pending criminal matters and, and so on, or, or police files or police misconduct files, all the things that could be exposed in an attack like that. What's their choice? They, they don't have a way. I mean, even if you back up all your data, that's, I, I got a comment on this. Let's say that they did a great job. And, you know, two hours before the, the, uh, the, the incident happened, uh, they did a backup. So their attitude is, ah, we back up all our data. You know, we're not going to pay. Well, guess what they're doing now? They're double and triple dipping. And what I mean by that is uh, not only do they want the money and then they'll give you the decryption key back, um, they may still come back and threaten 
to release the data anyway, unless you pay them again. So it's it's kind of a double whammy, an extortion threat, um, where it occurs more than once. And you don't have any guarantee of that. The other thing that may happen is that they've manipulated your data. Or in some instances, if it's a little guy, um, but he comes across a treasure trove of data, he may sell it to a more sophisticated cartel or gang, um, and they, they'll take it, and the, and the price of poker just went way up. What can governments do if they haven't been hacked to maybe decrease the, the potential for them to be hacked? Is, there, is it an education around cyber hygiene? Are, there, are they really just struggling that poorly with the systems in place? What, what are some thoughts there? Well, the governments are looking at um, a lot of different things. Zero trust programs, where everybody's treated like a remote worker, if you will, or, or a contractor. Uh, everybody's treated the same, CEO on down. Uh, and then, you know, privileged access becomes a whole new model of, you know, you don't just get in because you say you need it. We'll determine that. And then monitoring what happens, you know, when you are active. Um, and, and having a team of people that actually pay attention to the logs and, and the activities and look for behavioral anomalies. Um, so that's something that, that I think you're going to see more of. In fact, the Air Force just came out and said, we're going to adopt the zero trust model. Um, the DOD now has a program called CMMC. So if you want to be a contractor and provide services to the government, the DOD, you have to attain the CMMC certifications. And those are really much better and more rigid standards around uh, safeguarding data. But the other thing I would say is that there's still a real naivety among people in government and private sector around what are the risks. And, and guess what? Spear phishing is probably still the most common way they get in, and about 80% of the breaches. Um, they, they, BEC is another way that they do it. Uh, and then, you know, just the bad guys continually scanning for vulnerabilities on the web. Um, legacy systems that are not patched, oh my God, they bring a huge vulnerability and risk. Um, but, you know, multi-factor authentication, not hard to do. It's a great, you know, bridge, if you will. I, I've got it on most of my uh, uh, applications today, um, and it takes me an extra two seconds. It's well worth it. And it's one more level of protection. Um, you know, I, I taught a class um, at uh, USC, actually, and I had 30 students in a computer science lab. And I said, how many of you are connected? And I knew the answer, right? 100%. And I said, no, no, I don't mean to your school computer. I mean, personally, 100%. No, no surprise. I said, how many of you have any kind of security protection digitally? So like, you know, Norton, Symantec, McAfee, zero. Zero. These are computer... Kids that, that, you know, are in risk management programs, school of finance, and so on. And I'm not knocking them. I'm saying that there's a great level of naivety. And I found out about two weeks later, over half the class went out and bought something. Great, right? This is your life, right? 
It's out there and you've got to do more to protect it. And I think good cyber hygiene, cyber hygiene in the home carries over to the workplace. Good cyber hygiene in the workplace carries over to the home. It's all relevant. I think that example you gave is a really good kind of personification of what the the vulnerabilities are across the supply chain that the CMMC program is trying to mitigate. So you have these students within the school where if they don't have security measures in place, that you're only as strong as your weakest link. So a hack to get into USC could come essentially through one of those students. And once they're in, could have access to all different areas of the school uh, systems and enterprise. Is that is that to to you? And, and I know we talked about interoperability and and how it's generally a positive, but it, it can be a negative. Is that, to, to, in your opinion, one of the biggest threats that we're seeing right now, especially on the heels of that Solar Winds hack? Um, it dovetails really well into something that you brought up earlier: work from home. I, I think that work from home is is here to stay. It may become more of a hybrid model where you know it's a it's two three days a week. Um, whatever, but you're going to be working from home. The problem with it is that there's still a significant blending of personal and business information at home, in that workplace at home. And and we haven't really come up with the right standards and protocols and policies and guidelines and awareness programs uh, for our people. And and I think um, that really, really needs to be looked at. Um, and, and students, think about it. Remote learning. Remote learning is huge. Same issue. Same, you know, on your question of is it a risk to the, to the institution? Absolutely, it is. And there's much more that can be done about it. But there has to be a line drawn between personal use. You have to have personal use policy and also social media policy. You know, what do you post on social media that relates directly to your employment or your employer, they don't, they shouldn't mix in my view. It's too risky because you're putting so much of your life out there on, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and, you know, you name it, there's a plethora of, of ways of posting data um, that tell not only about you, but about what you do. And that is still the most common way of, of creating a good spear phishing attack is to go online first and find out that Steve loves dogs, so we're going to send him a picture of a cute puppy, and he's going to click on it, and we're in. Very interesting. Um, this has been really insightful. I think we could go on for for a really long time talking about some of those things, especially especially the fallout from solar winds. Really interested to see kind of where that lands. But do you have any final thoughts you want to leave our audience with? So I, I could probably come up with a list of 100 items off the top of my head that um, I would recommend, but let me give you a few that I think are really relevant. Um, talked about it earlier. You know, where are the crown jewels? Um, find them and then take a look at um, how they're protected. Are they encrypted? Crown jewels include personal information, um, you know, design tactics um, and uh, pricing and, you know, whatever. Um, that keeps you competitive, uh, but make sure it's protected. And then take a look at who's got access to it and ask why they have access to it. And, and what are they doing with it? And are you aware of the movement of data um, and, or the, the modification of your data? 
critical data. So I think paying attention to that in, inside the company is really important. Um, and doing a, a, a fresh uh, pen test or vulnerability assessment on um, where, where are you today? Uh, given what we know about the tactics of the bad guys and the new technologies and the games, uh, where are you today in that regard? Um, and then, you know, I, I think it's where are you now is really, I would underline that. It's not about, you know, oh, my God, you failed. You look horrible. Um, no, you don't. We're all somewhere. And, the, you know, if you look at the continuous improvement model of an ISO standard, it isn't um, being critical of where you are. What it is is identifying where you are and helping you develop a roadmap for continuous improvement. That's what you want. Take your key vulnerabilities, prioritize them, and start to uh, put a plan together to work on them. If you don't have BCP plans and people in place and functions defined, roles defined, uh, boy, don't be without it. You really need it. Um, on a technical side, I talked about multi-factor authentication. You know, use it as often as you can. Passwords, um, you know, 10, 12 characters. I can tell you as an example, a hacker to penetrate a 10-character password, alphanumeric, takes one week. They're not going to spend one week trying to get into something that you've protected that way. They're going to go somewhere else and try someone else. So, I, you know, it's well worth the effort. And don't be intimidated by 10 characters. Use phrases and terms. You'll remember it after you use it three or four times. Uh, really important. Um, no two passwords for the same access. I know that's tough. I've got, you know, 35 pages of passwords. I also have a, a password program that I use. There's LastPass, there's Dashlane, there's others. I, I really think they're good to help you with it because it can be overwhelming. Uh, they really work well and they're well protected. Um, I think that legacy systems, they have no place anymore. Spend the money, get rid of them. Um, and, and then on, on patching. Um, you know, when you see a patch come out, stop what you're doing and implement the patch right now. In the workplace, um, create a sense of urgency and understanding around the importance of all this. It's critical. Um, don't wait until, you know, it's too late and then wish you would have back to the deer in headlights approach uh, where you don't know what to do because you don't have a plan. Have a plan that can make the difference in, in whether or not you survive this or not. But I think really deputizing everyone in the workplace, making sure that cybersecurity and hygiene is enterprise-wide, that the habits are good ones, um, and, you know, anti-phishing campaigns, make them positive, not negative, implement them, do them all the time, you know, wear people out in the early days with it, but, but get them, uh, their awareness way up. That's the best safeguard you can, I, I think, implement uh, from a standpoint of, you know, decreasing the likelihood that somebody's going to come in and, and uh, cause you a problem. And then, you know, another one is ins insurance I talked about earlier. Take a look at what you might need and want. Uh, be reasonable with it. Um, there's more, but uh, how's that, Brian? Those are great. And I think all really practical, um, some strategic, some tactical, I think really great takeaways for the listeners. And you're giving these, these insights out on your podcast, why don't you tell our listeners where they can uh, access some of this information from you? Well, I, um, I, thanks for that. Um, I've got a program I do. In fact, I'm going to do a taping of it here pretty quick. Um, 
It's uh, uh, they're they're short. They're about eight to ten minutes uh, podcast format with uh, Ray O'Hara, who's former president of ASIS and a good longtime friend. And uh, we call ourselves Risk Rascals. And uh, what we're talking about are are I think some things that are really important looking forward. So and and what what is unique about it is it's not just cyber risk. Today there's all kinds of new risks that we face around the world. Um, and you know with with what's happening, I think in the digital space, if you will, the acceleration of that economy and the dependency on it, we are global, whether we say we're we're not or we are because we're connected. So we are global. What, so what does that mean? What are we introducing into our environment that we may not have done before? Um, but, but as I said, there's all kinds of other risks. Disinformation, misinformation, activism, insider threat. Uh, you know, the list goes on. So um, that's what we're trying to do is raise the awareness through that program. And then I do some, uh, some writing on LinkedIn. And, uh, and I do other, a lot of other webinars. Uh, for the FBI, OSAC, um, and uh, and for myself, uh, occasionally for you know academia, for U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and so on. So, if you haven't followed Steve Bernard by now on LinkedIn, I recommend you go do that so you can access some of this information and uh, catch up on some of the podcasts and some of the webinars he's doing. It's obviously incredibly insightful. I think you'll, as you've all heard right now, you'll get a lot of value out of it for sure. Thanks very much, Stephen. Thank you again for for being a guest today. Kind of walking us through some of those uh, behind the scenes uh, within Sony during during the hack and leaving us with some really, really great, like I said, strategic and tactic takeaways that uh, leaders and practitioners at every level can start to to weave into their, uh, their security, I think, uh, going forward. So really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.